I'm Jake Ryan. Welcome to the Criterion Collection special edition of Moonrise Kingdom. I'm here with the director of the movie, Wes Anderson, and the director of the Criterion Collection itself, Peter Becker. Wes, Peter, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for having us. It's good to be here. Okay, so now we should just roll it? Sure. Okay, good. So that's, that last one, I think, is the best one to use. Yeah. That sounded good. Okay. So we're going to talk about this movie now. We could begin with these logos. This is our producer, Stephen Rails, his company's Indian paintbrush, which I think is a type of wildflower. I think that paint is like dark red. <laughs> a very appropriate logo for this film, I think. That's a needlepoint, by the way. Those, you, you'll see over the course of the movie, there's many little needlepoint uh, um, pictures of our, uh, some of our main locations. Oh, yes. hey, that's me. This is you, Jake. What's up, me? That's you some years ago. Yeah. Peter, is this a, can I ask you a question? Yeah. When was the last time you um, did the commentary interview for, for one of the Criterion oh, Collections ones? Ah, uh, you're putting me right on the spot at the beginning. I, a long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yes, this, yeah, I, I, you know, I think we could say the Criterion Collection, you, you guys invented the concept of these DVD commentaries as Laserdisc commentaries. Yes, but we're not talking about that. Okay, we won't focus on that. No. Yeah. It's not about us. Okay. I think I have a question for you, Wes. Yes, please. What, what made you pick me to be Lionel? It's a good opening question. Uh, Jake is referring to the fact that he stars in the movie in the role of Lionel, the I think the eldest younger brother. Yep. Of the yes of uh, the character of Susie. Jake, um, I don't really know the answer to that question, and um. And you, we've worked together since this movie on a number of occasions. We did a, a, a commercial with robots, which, was, which you made up all the which, dialogue for. Which was pretty epic, i got to admit. Quite, a, quite, quite epic. <laughs> and, um, and then you did some work for us on the Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, Criterion DVD. And, um, and of course, we have this, another thing that's on this special edition, the Cousin Ben, what is it called? Uh, the Cousin Ben Scout Troop screening. Yes, that sounds about right. I think it would be good now for Jake to give us his third line. What is his third line? Let's bring it back to Moonrise Kingdom. Let's bring it back to Moonrise Kingdom. Let's bring it back to Moonrise Kingdom. Well, so when, when you start a film, and you, I mean the opening of a film, in the script and all that, have you, what, are you trying, what are you thinking about when you establish a scene? Well, in, this, in the case of this one, they, you know, sometimes the, the beginning isn't the thing you're coming up with first, in my experience. But with this movie, it was. The, uh, the, with this, I, I had an idea that I wanted to do a movie about, some, about young people, an island like this, and this opening scene, which is these uh, the the children in their house during a rainstorm, where they're stuck inside, and uh, listening to this record that I happen to know that it was a record I liked, um, uh, Benjamin Britten. So Benjamin Britten was allowed to do a lot of work back there just a second ago. I was in this play when I was a kid, Noise Fluta, which he wrote to be performed by amateur groups, church groups, and it's written to be performed in a church. And um, I was in it when I was, my bro older brother and I were in it uh, when we were, you know, t 10, 8, 10, something like that. And so that was the reason why I was thinking about Britain in the first place with this, and it 
and as we went along, we just found more and more Benjamin Britten that we wanted to include in the movie. So you didn't think you, I want to make a camp movie? I didn't think I wanted to make a camp movie right off the bat. The, and this this environment that, that that you were visualizing, some place and kids and rainstorms and whatever, did you, did you have any experience of such a place, or was this a pure fantasy for you? Well... There is an island that I thought that I that was part of the inspiration for this setting. It's uh, called Noshan. And um, so this is our sort of, you know, we ended up combining things from many different places. We filmed the movie in Rhode Island. And this house, for instance, is a combination of many different houses. A place called Clingstone that's built on a rock in Narragansett Bay and uh, a house in, on Cumberland Island in Georgia that we visited. And there was another house that's in the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the Thousand, uh, Thousand Islands? Is that what they're called? It's a dressing. Uh, what, what's, uh, what's on the, 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 the St. Lawrence River or the Lawrence River? Yeah, maybe it, that is right. We'll fact check ourselves on this. Um, it was a very, a very nice, uh, small, small island with one house on it. Um, and um, anyway, the, the, the set is a combination of all those things and Nashan. I remember that. Why don't we see if we can get Edward? Yeah, let's try him. Your call has been forwarded to an Again? Voice message system. Nine, six. Is that... We shouldn't... We probably shouldn't put Edward's... Home number on the on the commentary. <laughs> <track>. well, <laughs> well, well, don't let it out. Note to Christopher. <laughs> yeah. um, do you think we should keep trying, Edward, or should we get on with it? Let's roll some movie for a little while. Let's yeah. watch, let, let's watch some movie. You said there's special effects all through this. Any examples of that in this film? Um, yeah, in fact, in right here, you see when it, you'll see it says next. Good. The next is is we added later. On this table, all this scattered stuff in front of him, we put in afterwards. It was Andy Weisblum's idea to make the table dirtier. On the other hand, this, all we did is remove the support cables. That's a real treehouse we built um, for this shot. So the only thing that looks like a special effect isn't. Exactly. The thing I love working with digital effects and things is compositing things. It's that it's the ability we now have to take something and replace it or reposition it or change text or modify things in the frame that are absolutely indistinguishable from if we had filmed it that way. All the time we rewrite text and it's, you know, it disappears. But that's a different kind of uh, effects work, I guess. You know, it's often the signage. Probably, I would say, 80% of the shots in the movie have some kind of uh, visual effect. Um, and that all happened in post-production. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, to what degree do you think you might have been driven partly by the desire to put an adult Edward Norton in a scout uniform? <laughs> well, um, you know, Edward is an interesting one because, first, Edward does seem like he could have been in a Norman Rockwell painting. He looks like he could be in that, in that world. And um, second, Edward... Is uh, is would be it, I I don't think Edward did scouting, but Edward could I expect pass the tests required for an Eagle Scout um, handily right now. Um, Shukowski, breakfast. Should we try Edward? Let's take a call. 
Hello, Edward. Hi, uh, it's me, Jake, from Moonrest Kingdom. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Good. <laughs> Hi, Edward. Hi, Edward. Do you remember Jake? He plays Lionel, the uh, oldest of the little brothers. Ah, uh, yes. I, w I wasn't warmer because he's not a khaki scout. <laughs> <laughs> Edward, we're here doing the uh, commentary recording for uh, for the uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, Peter, and, and we've got Peter Becker here. Peter, do you want to ask? Uh, do you want some ask some questions that Edward or Edward and I together can uh, chime in on? Well, I think you know one of the things that uh, that, that Wes had said about about you, Edward, is that you're a very uh, capable outdoorsman. Had you had you ever had you ever been a scout or any of those things yourself? Um, I, w I, w I was a Cub Scout. I never was a true Boy Scout. Um, but I... Do you remember what rank you got on the Cub Scouts? I think they had Bobcat and Wolf. Um, I don't remember. There, yes. I, I, I seem to remember having at least three patches that were in like a, a you know, a, a diamond, diamond pattern. Or, yeah, a diamond pattern. Um, I don't know that I ever completed the bottom of the diamond, with right. whatever, eagle, maybe it was eagle. Um, yeah. But I do remember getting an honorable mention for my balsam wood sailboat that was painted as an orca. So you um, guys work hard, though, right? You work, I mean, I, I, I've seen the behind-the-scenes footage stuff, and you look like you work with a pretty, you know, you like a, a, a tight, small set, you know, and you seem like you get... You get a lot of work. You're done. saying how we when we're shooting. Yeah. No, but. you know, I, I think that Moonrise I think that Moonrise as a as an experience making a movie was really uh actually pretty unique in my experience only in in that because it, it was both a um a necessity and a choice on Wes's part to try to make the film in a very efficient, very stripped down way, unadorned by a lot of the kind of carrying costs of, you know, Wes really said, like, look, we're going to do this in a very, um, in a way that feels, it felt more like being in a repertory company. You know, it was like we were living in a house together. You, you got in costume at home, did your own hair and makeup. There weren't any trailers. They had some tents, you know, for people to. Yeah, and by tents, by tents we mean scout tents. Yeah, scout tents or little open-sided things. Well, in fact, the tents are interesting because we use one scale of tent for the interior and a different scale for the exterior, which is sort of the Sergio Leone system. At one point, there's hundreds of tents in their other scout camp, which are actually tiny tents. We use a bit of forced perspective. That is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, Edward, before you came on, Wes was saying that he had wanted to work with you and for a long time and all that. Wes, when you wrote the role, did you have Edward in mind? With this movie, I didn't have any actors in mind. I only thought about the characters. It was only once we had a script that I started thinking, okay, who, is, who, who are these guys? But Edward was certainly the top of the list for our character that he played. What I'm, what I'm curious about is I, when I read Moonrise Kingdom, I was really, um, uh, I loved it, and I was delighted by Scoutmaster Ward because I... I loved being a camp counselor, and I, um, the pleasant surprise to me was that Wes uh, somehow saw that 
quality in me because we had met, I guess, but not. it's not like we had hung out and spent a lot of time talking, and it's not as though a lot of what I had done up to that point would have led a person to see the inner Scoutmaster Ward in me. So I, I was sort of curious why. Um, is it American History X? That's When you become a good guy in American History X, that really is something that I can relate to this, because he's a leader. You know, it's the dark side. <laughs> and the other one is your character, is he called Holden? In uh, Everyone Says I Love You. That's right. Yeah, um, that's true. This character, he does seem like he could be like the um, guy in the Salinger story where he takes out his troop. Uh, does he have a scout troop in that? There's that story, The Laughing it's, Man. The Laughing Man, yeah. yeah. He's the summer camp. He's the counselor. summer camp guy, yeah. And then also, the thing I mentioned, I always thought Edward did look like somebody who might have posed for Norman Rockwell um, at some point along the way. And particularly the way Edward gets his hair. Edward had his hair an exact old-fashioned barbershop style in the movie that um, was, a, you know, in the right vein of uh, Americana. Yeah. You wouldn't find Clooney in a Rockwell. No. No, it's not. Just, it's just not the right... It's just not the right blend. But there's also certain things that when you read a script, I always find... There, there, sometimes I have the experience, you're reading something, you like it, it's good, and then you read a single line by a character and you say, I can't explain it. I, I, there was a couple of things in Moonrise, like you were reading along, it was cute, it was whimsical, it was things, and I remember being really struck by the scene where Bill and Francis are in the bed and... They say, we're all they've got, and the father says it's not enough. And like, when you're reading a script, like those are very small lines, and it's very easy reading things fast to go past things like that. And I, I remember flipping back and going, wait a second, that's a, that's a really different color underneath this. And then once you realize that there's a, an emotion underneath the surface of something like that, it changes the way you look at the whole piece because you realize there's something cooking under here that's actually, you know, deeper than the kind of fun of the surfaces of it. And I, and I like it when, I, when you hit something like that and you, it all comes together in one line. And I, I had that experience on reading that one. And they did, a, they did a good one when they did that scene, too. Well, that actually opens up the question that I was going to ask. You know, Wes, you're obviously known for having a very controlled aesthetic uh, approach that, that nothing is on screen by accident and you can feel it when you're in a Wes Anderson film you can feel it you could stop your frame and there's, there's some filmmakers you can stop on a frame you go well I know who made that and um, Edward as an actor what is it like to come into that space is there is there freedom in, in that I would I would call it um, freedom in bondage <laughs> No, it's, uh, I think it's great. I, I actually really like it. I, look, there's, there's experiences you have that are very much about discovery. Sometimes people paint very real armatures of scenes, and as actors, you, you try to discover something, and that's a very difficult kind of work in its own right, and it's something different. I find, whether it's Wes or someone like Fincher or people who have very specific visions, I, I find it very comforting because you move into a different gear where you're you're fulfilling like an incarnation of of a very specific character idea there's a lot less uncertainty and you're able to just sort of use the instrument and trust that what you're doing is bringing the instrument of your ability to 
manifest a character into the service of something very specific, and that specificity is great. It's like having a lot of your work done for you, and and I and I find that very relaxing, uh, ironically. Yeah. yeah, and um, uh, well, these things we shot uh, during the pre-production period. Well, that means because you haven't actually called it day one of photography. So what happens often is too many people want to be there. The more the more we can keep that size of an operation, the more fun it is to me because I've done some movies where it was very, very large-scale production and I, I don't enjoy it as much. And, it, and it's just, it, things get bogged down to me. Does the decision to shoot 16mm in any way relate to that or is that purely Com a decision that has to no, be... No, it relates to that, yeah. Can you it talk completely. about that? Well, it's a, yeah, you know, the cameras we had, we, they, we use these Aton cameras, which are Swiss, I think. And the one very small camera in particular, the A Minima, it's called. I mean, these are now all kind of, even now, these are sort of obsolete. But the A Minimas, I think, were developed with the input of Jean Luc Godard. And maybe they weren't finished in time for Godard to want to use them anymore. But I believe they come out of a, a, a collaborative process that was happening with the, the guy who owns Aton. The way these cameras are operated, you don't put them on your shoulder, these little ones, you, you, they're underslung. You know, you hold them in your hand like a, like a video camera. Um, you hold them at, the, at chest level or even waist level and you look down through the top of them like a, uh, like a Rolodex. Rolodex is another thing. And um, this was very good because many of the characters on our movie were short. They were 12-year-olds or younger, and it's hard to hand-hold scenes with someone who's down below you like that. But with this, it was at their eye level. Um, we didn't do the whole movie with these cameras, but we used the Aton system, and it was great. And also the, the slow stock uh, film that we used, slow, the, the slow-speed Kodak film that we were using, in 16 millimeter looks very very close almost identical to the fast 35 millimeter stock and since we now do the transfers digitally there's not like a blow up where you get extra grain it can look very you can get the real feeling of 16 millimeter and you don't feel like you're kind of um, compromising it as you make it into a bigger uh, uh, projection um, so anyway, that and that was all part of what went into the. Um, doing you know, one one aside. When you look at uh, one of the little handheld films I shot on Moonrise, we're about to all get on a boat and go out. There's there, there's a moment at which Fran McDormand realizes that the boat is is taking on some water, and and she starts saying, "We're taking on water. We're taking on water. Does that matter?" And then. And then Nate, our first AD, starts telling people to get out of the boat mm -hmm. and try to sort it out. And you, if you watch Wes in that moment, it, he's not only unconcerned about the safety of the children on the boat or anything like that, he immediately uses it as an opportunity to throw more crew off. As soon as he realizes, you can, you can literally see the moment that a light bulb goes off in his brain and he realizes... I now have a rationale for getting rid of more people, and he and he immediately starts saying, "Okay, so who can we lose?" Who um, we not need? But yeah, who, <laughs> it's it's uh, um, <laughs> Oh, where are, where are you, Edward? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, cool. How's the weather? It's actually very gray and chilly. Oh, uh, same here. 
I'm being told that we have schedule considerations. So okay. Like, yeah. Okay, so Jason we'll go back. By okay. And call him soon. Okay. We also have bill at three. Yeah. Well, let's. We better get these guys then. Yeah. Okay. I need to jump out to the bathroom. Edward, when are you coming back? Uh, Saturday. Saturday. Okay. Great. 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 Okay. Cool. So maybe see I'll see you week. over the weekend. Okay. Right, bye. Well, Thanks, Edward. Good. See you guys. Thanks. Please hold on while I try that extension. Good. Is Alex Cat in there? Hello. Hello, Roman. Yes. It's me, Jake. Hi. Hi, Jake. How are you? J you Roman, you remember Jake plays Lionel? Yes, 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 yes. Jake is hosting this um, commentary recording session. Fantastic. Any question for Roman, Jake? Yeah, let's go to the mailbag. Oh, yes, we have some questions from... Uh, Jake, you want to re just read one of these? This is from Ryan Angle from Mesa, Arizona. Mm -hmm. How did you choose the name of the movie, Moonrise Kingdom? And were there other working titles you brainstormed before you picked this one? Well, I remember where we were, because uh, we were on a little uh, grassy... No. Knoll of this place, and I remember we knew that the it, it suddenly clicked that the the three point one five uh, you know mile inlet whatever that whatever it's uh, they called it would be the title, and then I remember like moonrise moon, moon and we were just trying to think of the uh, names that uh, evoked the feeling of this kind of private. A magical place. Yes, yeah, we had the idea that the real the real place where they're going was 3.25 mile 3.25 tidal inlet, and that they were going to invent their own name of the of the place. And Moonrise, I remember, is I had seen this movie directed by Frank Borzaghi called Moonrise, which is a strange word. You don't often hear the word Moonrise, and. Um, that was just one little aspect of it we can share with Ryan. It's from C. Merton, Huntington Beach, California. What informs your creative process in the writing slash pre-production phase? And how long do you think you let an idea, Colonel, gestate before diving in? To wit, do you like to freely flow outward and then go back and edit, or do you like to surround yourself with research as you go along? I guess, uh, probably freely flow. <laughs> <laughs> I think just to, from my perspective, there's not so much research comparatively to other filmmakers I've seen their process where they're often really gathering a lot of visual imagery and stuff. But Wes always likes to watch movies just as a matter of his course in his life. And those movies often will have some uh, relationship to what's being worked on, even if it doesn't seem like it at all. But I would say Moonrise Kingdom is a little more... The research for me and Roman, I think, was what was it like when we were 12? Yeah, no, it was recalling those sensations and you know, those memories of uh, being a kid. And so, yeah, it was just kind of reaching back into your experience well. And, and, and not so much what happened, but also what we kind of wished would happen. You know, if you had met a girl and you could run off and have this adventure, you know. But there was a girl who I had the biggest crush on in fourth grade, and 
she passed me a note once after school and when I opened the note it says I think you're cute call me and um, it just if I thinking of it I get goose pimples now but that's <laughs> that kind of uh, and I did call her and and I, I, I was I kind of choked I didn't have a, anything interesting to ask her to say but um, anyway I kind of wish that we would have run off together in this way but yeah so we yeah. get to do it in the movie Jake, did you have a comment about that? You well, to... the thing that the thing that you could do, but you're not man enough. To do. <laughs> Jake says the thing you could do, but you're not man enough to do. That's what you're not yeah. man enough yet when you're 11. Yeah. Have you been in that position, Jake? Um, where yeah. you felt you the thing you could do, but weren't man enough to do it? Well, recently I played the I played a piano a six page piano piece with another person in front of like a whole school of adults. Well, when you say that, I wonder if we should go to the piano. Uh, sure. I'm okay with that. Let's, let's do it. We happen to have a piano here in the, in the recording studio. So Jake is just going to play a brief, um, what are you going to play, Jake? to play Sonata Number no. 1 in C by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Sonata Number no. 1 in C by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Go. Excellent. Bravo. Um, I think I hope that's free flowing enough for C. Uh, Merton of um, Huntington Beach. Um, okay. We should talk about the casting of Charity the two Care. leads. So it was very clear uh, when Roman and I had finished this a script that the crucial thing was going to be who plays Sam and who plays Susie, our two main characters. And um, that's really, there's no movie if they aren't great. Well, we got our casting director, Doug Abel, on very, very early, and we spent, uh, I want to say, six or eight months or something uh, searching for them. And along the way, we picked up all our, all our scouts. Um, there were lots of people auditioning, and we'd say, well, this one's still not quite the right one for Sam, but this is a great one. You know, this is a kid at, at this moment in his life is going to be very interesting and... Um, and so by the time we did find the two of them, which was quite late in the game, um, we had her, we had all the other kids too. Um, Jared, I remember in his audition was just, uh, it, it wasn't his audition, it was him, uh, that really was entertaining. And Kara, in her audition, she played this scene as if she was making it up completely, um, herself and was just seemed completely authentic. And they were great to work with. They were very um, invested in the movie, and 
sometimes with when you work with very young people, they they learn the script and they know it better than anybody on the set, and um, they know everybody's lines, and they brought a some special kind of emotion that only they know that has to do with they're really that age. They're really like these people. They understand them in a way we can only try to recall. Um, if somebody, if the movie works for them, it works because of these guys. Yeah, I remember seeing the tests and and um, Jared just stood out. I remember thinking, you know, he had such a different energy than I expected, you know, in our lead role, because we had sort of described him with his corncob pipe and yeah. kind of a little bit of a JD, and he had just this other quality, but I couldn't totally see it at first, but then, of course, it just couldn't have been better. It was just so so right for it. But it wasn't really written in the way that he portrayed it, you know. Like, we didn't just, or at least I didn't, in my mind's eye, I didn't see someone like Jerry, but he's so one of a kind, it's hard to even imagine that until you meet him. Yeah. Also, I remember when we were casting Rushmore, Jason was not really what we had in mind. We we had in mind somebody that I, I, I mean, I had always said, Owen and I had this description of a young Mick Jagger, <coughs> which Jason is a completely, Jason's like a young Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> well, that's actually, would you reflect that? It's very good. <laughs> well, I think, well, sure. So here's Did another. Did you have lunch, Roman? I haven't. Uh, are you hungry? I am. So are we. <laughs> we didn't have lunch either. No, we, ate cookie, we ate cookies and, and, and tortilla chips. All right, all right, what's your availability, Roman? Are you around for a little while? I'm around. There's little things I have to do, but, but I'll make myself available. So. Okay. So just, you know, for next hour and a half or so, we might reappear. All right. Sounds good. I'll just stand by. Okay. 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 That's a loaded question. Not speak. This is Bill. Hello. It's me, Jake from Moonrest Kingdom. No, Lionel. I, it's me, Lionel from Moonrest Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> He's your How son, you? anyway. How are you? It's good to hear uh, you. I haven't seen you in forever. What have you been doing? Oh, nothing much. I'm commentating for Moonrest Kingdom right now. You're commentating? Gee, I never thought that would happen to you. I never thought of it either. <laughs> Jake is the host of this recording session. Oh, well, uh, thank you. I'm glad you're doing a little bit more social work. You know, you got to get out there. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, Bill, where are we reaching you? Yeah, where's your current location at? I'm in a recording studio in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm. Oh, wow. Cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. How's the weather there? Well, it's about 85. Mm. Humid. It's warm. Yeah, out here it's, it's really. Out here it's like kind of chilly. The sky's gray. Yeah. Where are you, Norway? Uh, no, we're at <laughs> we're at New York City. Well, it's great down here. I was just doing some recording for a live-action animated movie called The Jungle Book. Cool. What? Do you, who do you play? I play the bear, Baloo. <laughs> That's a good role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen him sing. Is he walk like you, talk like you? I think so. Well, he's just, he's all he even requires is the bare necessities. That's the, all. Bare yes, necessities. the bare necessities. We're going to have to clear it if you sing it. Yeah. Don't <laughs> sing it if you can't clear it. <laughs> um, so let's ask Bill. Peter, do you have a question for uh, uh, Bill about the Moonrise Kingdom uh, movie? Sure. Wes tells me that uh, 
He's obviously a very controlling director in many ways, and effect is very controlled, but we also know him to be very improvisational in other ways that uh, might not be visible to those people who only see the finished product, but changing things as he goes along. But uh, you as an actor, uh, fitting into his world, how much do you think about uh, what he wants and how much do you feel like you'd have to do what you're going to do? Well, I only think about what he wants to do in the beginning, and if it doesn't work, I do something else. But it generally works, and there's always something that's sort of not accounted for, because writing a script is two-dimensional, and shooting a script is three-dimensional, and acting is three-dimensional. So there's sometimes little things that aren't taken into account, you know, just little things. And that's where I try not to get stuck on doing exactly what's in the script, because sometimes you miss a moment to do something. I don't contribute so much, but, you know, sometimes you find something that wasn't there, that wasn't noted, and, you know, you feel worthwhile. That's right. Yeah. Bill and I have done, I think, seven movies together. The first one we did together is Rushmore a long time ago. But I find often there are various uh, techniques or sometimes you just have things you go to for how to deal with playing a scene. For me as a director or for an actor, how do you, how do you get ready for it? How do you, what are you going to do that's going to make you in the moment? And I learned a lot of the things that I just automatically refer to from Bill um, over the years. So even as a kind of a director is often just a sort of a spectator while the actors are doing a, a scene, but I always refer to at a certain, some often refer to, which is feeling your feet on the ground, feeling your weight, feeling connected. Because as a, when you're an actor, you're imagine, you're, you know, you're, you're pretending, you're imagining, and sometimes you need to say, okay, let me just be conscious of reality, and um, I don't know, uh, can you take it from there? Uh, you know, you get, when you're imagining too much, you're sort of, everything gets up in your brain, everything gets up in your head, and you don't want everything there. It has to be grounded. You know, in a lot of these movies, I've had to work with younger, smaller people, and, you know, you don't want to be giving directing lessons or acting lessons or anything, but just things that can help are, are worthwhile. And I like to suggest, uh, I say, how much do you weigh? And the kid will say, well, I weigh 97, you know, or whatever. Or, or a girl will say, I weigh, well, you're not supposed to ask a girl, but I weigh 116. I say, well, let's just, just feel 116 pounds in your feet. Just feel that weight in your feet. And I'll try to feel my weight in my feet and, and just try to feel that weight in your feet. And, and then you can start all over again. You know, once you're, once you're set in the bottom, once you're grounded in the bottom, then everything sort of reconnects and you can, you know, head uh, after what you need to do, whether you need to say something or walk a, walk a certain direction, take a certain number of steps, hand something over. And it puts you in a real rhythm. It puts your body in the correct space and you sort of, you know, you sort of come back to natural life rhythm. Easier to speak and move. In this movie, you, there are two of your co-stars. Well, you're, you're, you play an attorney. You're married to uh, Frances McDormand. That was, my, that was my first casting thought of this movie was, boy, I would like to have Bill and Fran together um, to, see, to have them married. Um, in this story. And um, the other interesting relationship I liked uh, was uh, Bill and, uh, and Bruce Willis, who plays Captain Sharp. Maybe, Bill, you could talk about these two uh, collaborators. Well, the scenes with uh, Francis were 
that was like dancing. That was like dancing at night after a few glasses of champagne. It was really, we were pleasing each other and moving together and doing things effortlessly and exchanging, matching each other's energy and progressions. I think the scene I did, <laughs> the bed scene I did with, with Francis, where we're in separate single beds, was one of my favorite scenes I've ever done in the movies. I really enjoyed it. I could have done it all day long. So we just kept doing it. I don't think anyone wanted it to stop. Yeah. It was, it was really, really a delight. I, she's really, really talented. And now with Bruce, that was my first time working with Bruce, although I've had some, I have some history with Bruce, knowing him. And uh, the first-timers in all of Wes's movies have a difficulty with the sort of precision, the insistence on a very specific uh, script, you know. And it's a hard thing to to wrap your head around. And when Bruce is a, is a kind of a natural, he doesn't necessarily, in, in most of his movies, he just sort of lets it go. You know, he feels a certain way and he lets it go. Precision dialogue is never was never something that was too demanded because... It, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't his natural way, and he was able to do it in his own words most of the time. So it was a little different for Bruce doing that. In Wes's, because it's sort of it's very mathematical, it doesn't bounce the same way. So he needs it to be a certain way, and and you have to really, you know, you have to really get on yourself to get the lines right. And they're tongue twisters, and they're, there's there's lots and lots of tongue twisters that are hard to say. I just remember being in a car and doing some car scenes and just enjoying the heck out of it and saying, let's do some more of this. We did many, many scenes of it, many, many, many takes. Uh, uh, and it was always interesting. I think we were both enjoying it. I really enjoyed being on the other side, you know, just uh, hearing him go. And he has his own funny timing that's, you know, unique and it was it was fun to play okay let's see and we did uh, just wonderful stuff he's really wonderful I, I really had fun with it I really enjoyed it and uh, you know when you're when you know people are giving you just like okay I like that I'm gonna try this one and we just kept throwing them at each other and and really having a good time I've worked with him again since he, we really had a wonderful time working on on Moonrise Kingdom and I think I told him when I saw the film that when I saw the ending shot, uh, the climax shot on the bell tower, I laughed. That was the biggest, hardest laugh I've had in movie history. That's the biggest one I've ever seen. It made me laugh so hard when I saw that Bruce holding on to the kid. It really killed me. Um, we, we had a great time working with him. And I did have this idea I would love to have someone who was a, this is a kind of lonely, uh, solitary policeman, and maybe one inspiration is Roy Scheider's character in Jaws um, on this island. But I had, uh, had this thought, I would love to have somebody who you really believe 100% is the police, and, um, and there's nobody who you believe more is the police than Bruce Willis. Um, I particularly loved him in, uh, in Pulp Fiction and, um, and, um, and obviously so many other things. So um, we were lucky enough to, to lure him into this one. But there's also something nice about it. To me, it also takes him back to where he, we, we first met Bruce Willis really in like moonlighting. 
right? We met him on is, Moonlighting. Is it comic which I, yeah, And Moonlighting, I think, I mean, I've always heard that Bruce really improvised that role very significantly. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's so great about seeing him come back into, into this, uh, out of his action hero roles. Yeah. And we still get to use his action hero side a bit uh, later in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wes said you've done seven films together. You've been in all of his films but one at this point, right? That was Bottle Rocket. Yeah. I still have not seen that movie. We sent him a bunch of tapes of it over the years. I have many copies of the movie. Yeah. When um, when the Rushmore uh, opportunity came around, there were the, the agents and all kinds of people sent me uh, video cassettes of Bottle Rocket. I probably have the biggest single collection in the United States. I've never looked at any of them, and I think maybe Wes sent some and other people. They were coming from all parts of the country to me. And uh, they said, well, do you want to see this... Uh, Bottle Rocket, I said, yeah, I got, I, I got, well, I have a, several of them here, but I'm not, I'm not going to bother. And they said, well, do you want to meet the director? I said, no, I don't think that'll be necessary. <laughs> and they got real, they got real icy, like, but, but, but why? And I said, well, I read the script. And it's very clear the guy knows exactly what he wants to do. I, I'm, I'm fine. He knows exactly what he wants to do. I don't, I don't have to meet him. Then what happened was I got a call I was in a, a, a studio executive's office, and Bill must have been somehow somebody who Bill talked to had said, "I don't know exactly. I I don't know. Maybe Bill remembers." Suddenly, I was in Donald. De, I was in Donald DeLine, who was one of the uh, Disney people at the time. His office, and suddenly, they his secretary comes in and says, uh, "Bill Murray is on the phone for you," and I thought, "How how does he know I'm out here in Burbank?" Uh, in this office, and then Donald DeLine picked up his stuff and cleared out of his office and left me there, and uh, and then Bill and I spoke, and Bill talked to me for about a half an hour, or a, we had a long talk, and he told me uh, that what he, some things he'd thought reading the script, and mainly what he talked to me about was a Kurosawa movie called Redbeard, that he had seen some link to our story with something about it did not the something about the the way the character evolves in the story or something. Um, it was about Redbeard. Well, it's it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Uh, it's it's just a spectacular film, and uh, you know it's it's sort of what I would aspire to to make if I could make a movie like that. I can't remember at this second what the heck I was thinking about in relation to Redbeard. And this, oh, we were talking about emotional things that were, the thing about Redbird that's so wonderful is the plot is very straightforward, but along the way, these sort of, uh, these sort of little, uh, you know, rabbit snares are set, set along, these little things are, these little things are set along the side of the road, and there's a, a kind of a rhythm to the plot where your internal clock goes, you know, goes off and says, well, it's time for, for the climax of the movie now. But that's not what happens in this film. What happens instead are, uh, are that all these, these sort of subplots, these little sort of traps, these little tricks that are set up along the way, they all go off at once. They all burst into flower at once, one after another, I should say. And there is this emotional, uh, I mean, just a, just a drubbing that you get. You just get just punched in the solar plexus, 
just repeatedly for several minutes for like a whole reel that you're not, you didn't see it coming. You sort of didn't see it coming. And it pounds you because the, the plot has been so straightforward and clean that your intelligence is elevated and you're available for this emotion that comes all at once. And I think that uh, this, that, that movie, Rushmore, had a similar kind of construct in that it seems like, okay, now we're going to do this stuff. A lot of action has happened. You know, there's been this struggle between the, the man and the, and the young man and the girl, and you think it's all going to go off, and then a whole bunch of other things happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. I I, I want to I want to watch uh, Redbeard again. Moving on. Let's just let's just look in the mailbag. This is Molly Raspberry from Raleigh, North Carolina. What is your opinion on love? What is your opinion on love, Bill? Well, I'm in favor of it. <laughs> that reminds me of like a Fernand. That reminds me of like a Fernando expression. What is your definition of love? Uh huh. Fernando. Who, who is Fernando? Uh, Billy Crystal made him up. Oh, you mean like you look marvelous? You look marvelous, darling, absolutely marvelous. Yeah, I actually met him once, and he taught me how to do some. Uh, and he taught me how to do the uh, Fernando accent. Holy Toledo! <laughs> Holy Toledo! That's crazy, go nuts. Well, do a little for us. I mean, you can't just leave us hanging here. Um. Okay. You look marvelous, darling, absolutely marvelous. And as for me, it is better to look good than to feel good. And I am, I look absolutely marvelous. Well, I gotta say, you have, you've added a nice Albanian hint to this performance. It's very nice what you've brought to it. Thank you, darling. <laughs> Holy cow. Yep, great, great, great. Okay, thanks, Bill, for uh, joining us in this little uh, um, uh, di- di- divertissement. Oh, wait, wait. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, I, you know, I hope to see you. I see you and bring that Fernando Lamas egg, will you please bring that along? Bring your llamas. Yes, you my, my beautiful llamas, my beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, will, I will surely bring my, my marvelous llamas. <laughs> It really sounds Albanian. It's spectacular. <laughs> it's really good. Thank you, Don. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, right, Bill. Bye, Bill. Right. Thank see you. you. Thank you. All right. See you soon. Thanks okay. again. Bye. 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 Bye, Bye Bill. So, um, so do we? So do we? Do we pause the recording? Let's, yes. let's take a. Let's take one yes, quick moment and say, what are we doing now? And then we can. Yes. Okay. It's windy, he said. Like someone in there's blowing Thank you for calling American Zotrope. Please hold on while I try that extension. Hello? Hey, Roman, this is Peter. Yes. I was saying to Wes, my one real question is for, for you guys, and when, you, when, when I phrase it to two people at once, it sounds even worse. But I, I grew up with the Paris Review interviews, and one of the things I always loved was this very specific question where they would ask you to describe in pornographic detail your actual process of writing, you know, whether you write with pencils or pens or crayons or whatever. And then I think of, the, of actually Wes having written scripts with people so often, and I've always kind of wanted to ask that question, although it does sound funny to ask you to describe writing. Yes, how do you do it, especially together? How do you do it? Well, Wes holds the pencil, 
and um, and he's as you know, not only is he the writer, but he's also the director. So he also has the uh, you know sort of a clarity of what it's going to be when it's on set. And so you know, we'll often the way it goes, we'll discuss things, we'll ask questions, we'll sort of jam things out. Maybe there'll be a little improv, or we'll you know suppose we're the characters and go on a little trail, and then. Often, you know, that's written in one of Wes's notebooks by him in his very particular notebook and a very particular pen. And then, uh, and then there'll be a phase where it's, it's typed into the computer. You know, with this film in particular, I had been working on the beginning of the movie for a very long time. Then I asked Roman to look at it, and we then started working on the script together. And within the next three weeks, I would say, we had the whole movie written. Write different things over the years. There's, we have an expression was whether something's in the forest or not in the forest, and it's a sort of an analogy of writing is sort of like um, going someplace you've been, maybe in a dream, and you're driving there, and you sort of have a sense of, of what this place is. You've kind of been there in this dream state, uh, and so if something's in the forest, that means it's sort of a landmark. Is it in the forest? Is it, is the, it forest? In the forest? I think it is. I don't know where it is. I don't know where it is, but this is in the forest. Yeah. So that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm sorry about this. Let's go back to Edward. I didn't know your situation. It wasn't in the register. Once again, you're going to greet him, right? Yeah. Never mind. I... Hello? Edward, what's your recollection of this scene? This scene where Scoutmaster Ward and um, Sam are in the boat. They've gone below deck. My recollection of this scene um, was that uh, it's sort of a moment where Scoutmaster Ward realizes that m more has been going on under the surface of his troop than he was aware. And I think he, um, it, it, it's, it's poignant to me because he, I think he realizes that it's the first time he realizes that he hasn't paid attention to the fact that this kid has things going on in his life that are hard. Um, and that it needs a different kind of attention than just, uh, you know, khaki scout, uh, you know, uh, code. And, um, and I think he becomes, he, he, he becomes a little more human. Um, but I think the way, the way, um, moments unfold, there's still a lot of, uh, figuring out and it's, um, um, and, and it's nice. Good. That's a good little bit. I think Wes, didn't you have you had some pretty involved set of I, I maybe not so much with the mise en scène if you want to call it that, but I think the way the way um, moments unfold, there's still a lot of uh, figuring out, and it's fun. Yeah, well, I always feel like you know we have a sort of plan, and you know Edward is interested to see these little storyboard things we make in advance nowadays. Some actors, like Willem likes to watch these. Edward is interested in these. 
some people, I think, they feel like, this is going to, I don't need to see that. And I don't make them for the cast, really. It's just if anybody wants to see them. The, more than anybody, it's for, for the production designer. So we know what we're going to build. Um, Adam Stockhausen, Bob Yeoman, those are the people who they're really for and for me, so I don't mess up something. But the thing I feel is even if you have a very precise plan of how the thing is going to be and even if you're not going to change the dialogue or anything like that, I never know what the actors are going to do. I never know what they're going to take with this and how they're going to bring it to life, and it's always a complete surprise to me. I, I actually like Wes's line readings uh, in his animatics, so I find myself not infrequently just turning and saying, say that again. You know, like, uh, <laughs> I, I, and I'm, probably it's because Wes just has a great feeling for the rhythm in, of the lines he's written. He, he obviously hears them, and I just like to hit it. And the easiest thing for me is just to have him say it and then replicate it in many cases. And I am kind of a compulsive mimic, so I get satisfaction out of that. But uh, I don't usually like line readings from directors, but I like them from Wes. A line reading from Alejandro in Uritu is a disaster. <laughs> Whereas from Wes, it's, it's actually usually very effective. Jake, you want to go to any of your questions? We can go to the mailbag. Let me see if we have any mailbag questions for... for uh, yeah, let's go to the mailbag. Um, so this one is from Jonathan Bicker of Vancouver, Washington, and unfortunately you're going to have to read from one side of the page to the other, but I think you can handle it. We'll start here okay. and go right through there. Okay. This is from Jonathan Bicker from... What? From Vancouver... Washington. From, oh. This is from Jonathan Bicker from Vancouver, Washington. I'm a big fan and have many questions, but my biggest question stems from the idea that adults always act like kids and kids often act like adults in your movies. What prompted your interest in exploring the disparity between age and maturity in Moonrise Kingdom? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think, um... No, I don't know. Edward, do you know the answer to that? I would take it a little wider than Moonrise and say that I... Uh, over time, I think I've started to realize that most of the filmmakers that I like in some way or another make the same movie over and over again. Um, when I, I made a movie with Milos Forman and I realized that this story about Larry Flint, the pornographer, was really the same story as... Mozart, yeah. it was the same story as um, Milos's life and his experiences have led him to be interested in how individual anarchic creative spirit resists oppression by institutions. And I think it's interesting, in Moonrise Kingdom, I, I having watched all of Wes's movies over the years and been a big fan of them, I don't think it really crystallized for me until we were working on Moonrise that a lot of Wes's movies have um, people whose family has let them down or not provided everything they need, reconstructing family in the way that they actually need it. Or, you know, the, you don't always get the family that you want, so you create the family that you need in some sense. And I think, um, I think that's kind of true of, you know, Max, Fisher and, and and Bill's character, I, I think it's true and, you know, on the boat and Steve Zizou and his community, I think 
and I felt like that's really what Moonrise had in it too. Like Scoutmaster Ward doesn't have much of a life, so he creates his little community and his troop, and you know the Bruce and the boy end up like creating the family that they need in each other. And I think um, that's something I started seeing as a theme through a lot of Wes's films that I like, and I and I and I think um, you know ki- kids who are at a loss sometimes act out in in ways that are sort of pretending to have an adult life and when adults act out because they're not happy a lot of times they go back to sort of more you know immature behavior I remember this photograph do you remember this picture we had that was a uh... I think I sent you this picture of this uh, guy, which I had first thought was a scout master and then realized it was a a marine in Vietnam. And I'd always thought maybe this character that who Edward plays in the story is, you know, six months later, uh, you know, he lands in uh, in um, uh, wherever it is, uh, Hanoi or uh, wherever you fly in. Um, the Marines never got to Hanoi. Uh, <laughs> that was north of the DMZ, West Bay. Oh God! Can I re- can I ask a question again? You can say Saigon. <laughs> no, what would okay. I say um, Saigon? So, so let's go back to the kids and adults thing, just from a professional perspective. We have you know adult professional director and actor, and a and a set full of kids. Any how is that different? Any, any different ways you have to work because you're working with kids? Well, you're talking to me. I'm talking to both of you. Oh, I I was still thinking about Saigon and Hanoi and everything. <laughs> um, the um, well, um oh, wait, wait. So what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to muse on Saigon and Hanoi, please let's well, go. No, there. What I well, was... can I say? Can I say that again? If you watch my home movies, <laughs> uh, I also actually interview Wes. At one point, I said that they say to never work with um, children, yeah. animals, or on the water. And Wes says, and I'm doing all three. Yep, we do all three at once in this yeah. one. Yeah. I did completely steal that from you. That's true. I, I I thought our scouts were really our kids in general were really um, not just well behaved bunch they were very um, very responsive and very malleable. Are they professional actors? They weren't really. I, I mean, that's what I liked about what West chose a lot of kids who were just kind of excited to be there, and no one really seemed to me to have any kind of. Um, a large number of them came from the same school in New York. A bunch of them were end up were like you guys know each other. They're in the same class. Um, but Jared and Kara were great. We have Jake mm-hmm. Ryan here, who's with us today, who mm. is wonderful. And then Jake ended up in uh, in uh, Lewin Davis. Uh, <laughs> the next thing I saw, and um, and then we also Lucas Hedges, who plays the character Redford. His father's Peter Hedges, a writer, director, and Lucas uh, has been in several other movies, including uh, Lucas has a small part in Grand Budapest. And we've got people like Charlie Kilgore, who is a who's a who's also has a small part in uh, Grand Budapest, and who's a great actor. It's all available on IMDb. West. Exactly, yeah, you can IMDb all this. Yeah, yeah. It's all, the, the information is out there. I think Wes is particularly good at directing kids, though. You, I think um, you have a pretty easy way with um, I think take your time with the casting of the kids I mean you had a good scout troop I think on yeah. this one another important collaborator we haven't really talked about it all today the question is um, about Bob Yeoman and what is it about how he works that you guys have worked together on every film right pretty much every film and, and, and Romans Romans worked with Bob many times without me 
uh, Bob is the director of photography of CQ, Roman's film CQ, right, of and lots of other uh, short form projects that Roman's done too. Should we go back and forth on this one, Roman? As we, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't even, uh, you know, what, 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 what could I say? And Bob is is a very um, um, I, he wants. To, well, you 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 start. I, oh, I have one thing. First of all, over all these years, we've done different kinds of movies together. But more and more, we've kind of geared ourselves towards being more free and uh, being a little more new wave with our, uh, you know, with the way we make the movies. Well, this particularly takes advantage of one of Bob's especially great strengths, which is he's a very, very good camera operator, one of the best. And it's very dynamic, and he can do things that pe other people just, uh, that I've seen other people incapable of doing. And he's... Are we talking about camera movements, uh, keeping, the f keeping the frame you want to see through movements? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about doing something hard. Doing something like a 180-degree whip pan on a moving dolly, for instance, yeah. is a hard thing. specialty. Operating is a, is a complicated and uh, performative kind of... Uh, action you take it for granted that you know if you after a few years you don't even realize how hard some of the things that i'm asking him to do might be, be. but um it, it, sometimes when you operate a shot you be, suddenly become aware that if i mess this up i've messed up all these different people's work all at once there's so many people doing things at once but you know most of bob's job is about lighting it's the balance of getting every making a circumstance where you can get everything to happen together um, and he's in tune with all of that. Well, one, one big thing about the photography you probably talked about already is, is the choice to shoot it in 16 millimeter, which which had a lot of uh, effect on the, the look in terms of the weight of the cameras that you could, the portability and so on. The, it, it, exactly, and, um, and 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 even the grain of the 16 millimeters. Well, it just it was a distinctive choice that you made to shoot in that format, and it allowed the. You know, the cameras be much lighter, more portable. It, just, it has a, a quality that kind of recalls the 60s and the time it was set. So that was a, kind of a big choice. Yeah, and you know, I, to me, the grain, in the, the grain in this particular stock that we used is a grain you can feel, but it's not a grainy image. It just, it has a very soft, gentle grain, and... Um, it's to me. I, I really, I particularly like the the the, the atmosphere of this uh, of of this sort of um, uh, format. Yeah. Um, Did the judge consider your application for leniency, Rogers versus Gentile? The funny thing that's happened in here is <laughs> he woke up. Peter had, I think Peter had briefly I had a dozy nodded. moment. <laughs> Peter had briefly I lost nodded it. off. No, I, was, I, <laughs> but, I actually believe that I heard what you were saying, but I was going. I was going deep. <laughs> but Roman, Peter was actually tilted over sideways with his eyes closed. So yep, even I lost if, it. Even if he was awake, which I think is kind of a nice thing to include in this commentary no, recording. No, it cannot. It's kind of funny, though. It's, uh, our, we've, our, been in, we've been in here for for almost five hours yes. straight, wow. right? Yeah. Yep. No, it's a bunker. Four hours it's and a, 20 it's minutes. It's very much a bunker mentality in here. <laughs> Let's bring it back to Moonrath Kingdom again. Uh, I mean, do, when you say, what is our approach to lighting or what is our attitude to lighting, does that change film to film or is that something that is consistent for you? No, it could, ch it could change, yeah. 
It could change. And, you know, it can change. Like on this last movie we did, all our night work we did as day for night. Um, and we did a kind of... Uh, DI version of making of how we how we change that stuff. Um, and do you have to light specially for that, or do you get to change some, the light in in the digital space? You can change the light in the digital space, but but you do. But there are things you're doing on the set that are different too, like practical lights that you're absolutely blasting because you know you're going to bring the whole thing down so much. So in this film, what was the attitude to lighting? What was the feel? Well, it you know, for, for, there's a part of the movie that's in a uh, that's in the sort of '60s version of this hotel, which is all toplit with fluorescent uh, light. You know, the look of fluorescent lighting, and in the same hotel. We're, we're, we're a different movie. Oh yeah, let's yeah. Let's bring it back to Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> yeah, let's let's bring it back to Moonrise Kingdom, guys. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, it's a Moonrise Which Kingdom. Movie? We, can leave, we can leave out the part where you forget what movie you're talking about. No, I have to leave out the part where I, I fall kinda, asleep. I like it. I like it. I, think, <laughs> I feel like it might be entertaining. I, would, um, it would, this, I think this whole commentary has been like the best, uh, the only commentary I've ever been in, but it's probably the be- the funniest thing I've ever heard in a while. Oh. <laughs> are you missing lunch, Roman? Are you are you all right? I, I'll, uh, as soon as we're done, I'll, it will, probably we'll be going to get lunch, but... I, I, um, are you going to go to like a Chinese place right there in the north? Uh, I usually go. I usually do. I just I get a Chinese chicken salad and bring it home. Because you know where that he's. No, got these, I do. I he's do. got like three Chinese restaurants yeah. right around the corner. Really? Which nice. which one's your favorite Chinese restaurant? You know, I'm always at Brandy Ho's. Cause it's so close. Um, but the House of Nanking is right across the street and very highly regarded. I like Yang Sing. There's just a bunch of good ones. Mm, cool. Take that under advisement when you go to San Francisco. Yes, yes, I will. So, Christopher, that was a good bit there. That was a good. I think the the Chinese rash. I mean, that's something valuable people can get from. It's a important information. Yeah. So here we go. The uh, the. Um. So, what I propose is this. Who is this bimbo? Okay. Uh, pr- pretend like we're watching the thing. Okay, here comes cousin Ben. Jake, should we, should we do another call? What? Let me get Jason on the phone. Hold on. Hi. Hi, Jason. It's me, Lionel from Moonrise Kingdom. Do you remember Jake plays Jake plays Lionel, the the uh, the eldest younger brother? Yes, I know. How are you? How I'm... are you guys? <laughs> We're great. Thanks for asking. Cousin Ben, Jason, your character is about to arrive. Um, uh, do you remember the, the, that? <laughs> oh, great, great. That's, um, that was really, um, fun, uh, the day we, we shot that scene. Um, I remember, um, if I'm not mistaken, that the, you know, the scene is, uh, myself talking, um, um, to the, um, younger scouts, uh, and we're walking along a, sort of a, uh, sort of a ledge. Uh, sort of a ledge exactly um um and you can see all the people down below um working on things and uh i'm talking very fast and um part of the reason i'm talking very fast is not only because it's efficient and most likely the way that cousin men would have talked but also because at a certain point the ledge ends were you Um, at risk of falling off the ledge either at the end or on the side of it that's right so i have to try to talk fast and also favor my right 
Um, I also recall you had to work with quite a bit of chewing gum in the scene. That's correct. <laughs> a lot of chewing gum, um, which at the time always sounds like a great idea. <laughs> um, and um, I remember, I think you had just arrived in Rhode Island right. with us, and suddenly you were... Um, That's right. Uh, well, I had come overnight from New York City and um, stepped out of the car dressed, and uh, I saw you all shooting uh, the movie in the distance with the crew, and you uh, asked me to come over, and essentially I think we just said, uh, let's start shooting. And there was very little um, talk about what was going on or what the scene should be. We just started doing it. Um, um, and so I think that I was barely out of the car. I don't think I knew even everyone's first name <laughs> in the scene. You hadn't met your co-stars. I hadn't gotten any really formal introductions. Um, but the other thing I remember was just, you know, I can have a tendency sometimes to want to, like, talk to people about things in their lives. And um, I, I don't know if it was you or someone said, from within the scene, try to keep everyone on track. So between takes, I, uh, I wanted to talk to everyone and I would hear the kids talking about stuff, but I just tried to look off into the distance stoically. Well, um, that's interesting because... engage. So you guys know each other really well and I happen to know that you are, that you are quite, a, quite a cinephile in your own right. Do you guys talk a lot about movies? Well, I'm not, uh, you know, on the level that uh, Wes is, you know, he, he consumes much, much more and many, you know, many more movies. But uh, I would say that, um, you know, our relationship is based on, uh, is one that is based on a love and enthusiasm for, um, for, for movies and music. I mean, not based on, it, of course, but I mean, like, it's a big... But it's how we it met in the first place. Like, the, the second that we met, the first time we met, we were talking about music, and, and um, it's always had a, uh, an element of sharing has always been a, a, a real part of it. And, um, and I do credit Wes with, like, kind of becoming, the, you know, like, my mentor at 17. That was a time I, I had seen movies, but it was, they had a different, they were for a different purpose. The, uh, um, and then Jason... Are you in? Yeah. Uh, are you at home? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, but I'm not at my house. You're not at your house. Oh. You're not at your house. Are you at Mozart in the Jungle? No, I'm actually um, at um, uh, my friend's house. Um, this guy named Julian Waz, who's a composer, and um, he did the music for this movie, The Overnight. Oh and, yes. Uh, cool. I'm, we're gonna put the movie out on a soundtrack, and I'm over here uh, gonna do a song with him for the soundtrack. What's oh, his wow. instrument? Pardon? What instrument does your friend play? It looks like he plays, he has like a lot of synthesizers and um, um, drum machines and a piano and a guitar. Ooh, I play the piano. It's a cool setup. Cool. You do? Mm-hmm. What was your favorite scene from uh, Moonrise Kingdom? Uh, what's my favorite scene? Um, that's, that's a great question and, you know, they're all so wonderful, but the one that I really, really, really uh, remember, like, right when I saw it, feeling very moved by, was the scene with Bill and Francis McDormand laying in bed staring up. <laughs> um, to me, that's just, like, um, such incredible writing, directing, and acting. And it's just a combination of everything just going 
Right. Obviously, like, they're such incredible actors. I mean, it's just, it's very moving and very beautiful and very quiet. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. What is the phrase, there's a Japanese phrase for this, but what is it when the waters are still on top but below? I don't know what it is, but the, but the yeah, I forget the Are we meant to say phrase, it in Japanese? There's a Japanese phrase that, um, to describe the surface of the water being one way and, and below it being different. That's sort of what that scene is really to me. Mm. An iceberg scene. Mm-hmm. Tip of it. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. go to the mailbag one more time. So, how did directing Fantastic Mr. Fox change your way of filmmaking in your later slash future films? Sergio. Sergio. Sergio, yeah, this guy's a, Yeah, the person who wrote this is named Sergio London Denton, Texas. Denton, Texas. Denton, Texas. Denton, There's a great Texas. band from Denton, Texas. Who is it? They're called Lift to Experience. Lift to Experience. Um, well, I thought that we could both answer this because Jason and I had an interesting experience together doing Fantastic Mr. Fox um, because we recorded, you know, I had a great time doing an animated film and it's a slower process, but there's always a lot happening at, at once. There are many things happening slowly, simultaneously when you do an animated movie. And um, it's, it, but it's a fun way to work with actors. It's like doing a radio show, but it's even more free than that because it's because of the way it's going to be edited. And one of the things that I've sort of taken into the live action movie making uh, thing for me is that um, the way you make an animated movie is by storyboarding it carefully and then animating your storyboards, like sketch version of the movie. And um, this has been very helpful for me because it's not that you have more control it's that you can try it out first and see you can work with it a bit um, before the moment happens that you've got to shoot it we might do 25 takes uh, of something or another but going back later because you made a mistake is often not the solution it's just uh, what you really want is to go there and get it on the day and so I feel like some of the stuff doing the animated movie helped me feel like I was increasing my chances for getting it right on the day. Um, do we want to ask Jason anything else? Yeah, you still need me? Yeah, we can. We, we, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> he's inside, yeah. Do you want me to get him for you? I think they uh, need you outside here, Julian. Um, uh, the... Uh, yeah. Who's 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 looking for Julian? Um, the, the plumber. The plumber is there. Okay. Is there a problem? There was. It was a significant problem earlier in the day. Yeah, with the pipes. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it's resolved. Well, Jason, it's thank you for great. joining us again. Guys, thank yeah. you so much for Wes. Thank you for letting me be a, a part of the movie to begin with, and thank you all for letting me be part of the DVD um, now. Thanks, Jason. Bye. 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 Okay, why don't we do, like... Movie. Yeah, why don't we kind of jump to a later part? Why don't we watch the last 20 minutes of the movie so that we can just commentary our way out of it, or even 15? Shall we do that? Yeah. Hello. Hello, Edward. This is a big sequence for Scoutmaster Ward. Do you want to talk about this for a bit? Yeah, well, uh, this is, I guess, what you would call... um 
what passes for a Wes Anderson action sequence. For starters, I, I grew up using putt-putt motorboats, so I, I was happy to get to put those skill sets to use. And um, the trick was coming into the dock to uh, come, come in with enough acceleration that it made for a dramatic um, shot that didn't go on too long, but also get the boat into neutral and turn around and get up and out um, all in one go. And I, I think we did it in just a few Maybe two, it, yeah, I maybe. It I mean, it's quite nice. He, he does jump from a moving boat here, um, which is uh, not normally a thing you really um, you do in real life. You really want to do. You don't necessarily want to. Do you think that uh, having the degree of total control that you can have in an animated film has changed the way that you've made live-action films since? I love miniatures. You know, I, I love them in movies. And you don't, you the, don't say. <laughs> Then I get worried about, is this, is this, have I crossed a line here? Is this too fake? And can we do everything we can to try to make our miniatures seem like a, a way? I, I'm just hoping people are going to fall for it. In the old days, you know, people saw a miniature, they didn't really think of Now, I like sort of old-fashioned movie techniques, but um, I usually lose my nerve when it's too late. Wes had said to me earlier, do you think you can actually carry Harvey? And uh, we tried it once or twice, and I realized I was going to rupture a disc uh, if I tried to run with Harvey, let alone jump uh, across with him. So Wes designed uh, a Harvey Keitel backpack dummy um, that could that could stand in, and we had some issues with the, the hands on it, but on the whole, the Harvey Keitel backpack dummy um, was a was a great great fix. Edward was particularly entertained by my struggles to get this backpack made. He knew it was something that I had said from very early on. We, I have a solution for this, and it's a good solution. It's a Harvey Keitel backpack, um, and um, yeah. Um, but um, I think that uh, I think that what is fascinating is to see a, that a grown human being, a grown man, can be like a a child with a magic kit who is not realizing that the parents are, are, are not so much fooled by the trick as they are enjoying the fact that their child is doing an obvious uh, effect. And I think Wes has not grasped that his audience knows is, it's not is, magic is with him, is with him uh, in their love of miniatures and only Wes is concerning himself with whether the miniatures look real. If it's true, that works for me too. Okay, good. Tilda Swinton, I, you know, I had been briefly in touch with Tilda after she wrote me a very nice email after Darjeeling Limited. She was there when we, when we had it at the, at the New York Film Festival. I didn't actually get to meet her. And, um, and I've been a fan of Tilda since Orlando, which I saw at Sundance in 92. Um, she was there. And um, we had our bottle rocket short there. Then I just had this such a place. We have this character, Social Services, who's uh, who's both uh, an individual and an organization, a, some type of government organization. And Tilda is one of those ones who uh, one of the things that you love, which is uh, you say, uh, "I have this part in mind for you. Can I send you the script?" And she writes back. When do I need to be there? Uh, tell me the dates. Uh, yes, I'm happy to read the script too. 
Nothing else is in your There's Jed. There's Jeb with a male. Jed with a male. I think he's Jed. Um, and that's Cooper Murray right there with the uh, plastic bag over his Indian headdress and, uh, and the, uh, of course, a stick with nails sticking out of it. Can we talk a little bit about music for a minute? Yes. You, have, you know, we move fairly seamlessly, especially in this film. I mean, here I'm hearing in the background. Whoa. In the background, you're hearing Britain. Exactly. More from Noise Flute. Where did you guys find that giant stick? Well, we had to make that giant stick. Hmm. Uh, and we put some nails in it. You, you, you don't just find a stick like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you find the stick. But then you've got to, you, it's up to your team to, to, to get the right nails and, and uh, make it look scary enough. Mm. So where I was going with the music set of questions had to do with uh, Randy Poster, Alexander Desplat, and presumably, um, in this case, Britain is almost like your third composer. He came with the package. Yeah, right? I mean, we sort of started with Britain. Um, and, um, and there are some Britain pieces that, uh, you know, I just started listening to anything I could get a hold of because I didn't know the whole body of work. And, and many of these pieces, some of my favorite ones are ones I just found trying to say, well, how could this fit into the thing during the script writing phase? So, so where does Randy come into the picture? Early also? Yeah. He comes, he's, he's more or less involved from the very beginning. And we just, you know, whatever I'm thinking, I tell him, and then he often will do more research into whatever direction we're going, get a hold of anything we can. He'll sometimes, in when we were doing Darjeeling, for instance, he went to Calcutta and met our friend Sandip Ray, um, in a, and uh, was able to access all the archives of music that Ray had written or music that had been written for his films. Um, and um, it's, yeah, a lot of it is just getting a hold of stuff that's hard to come by or finding out about stuff we didn't even know existed. Wow, <laughs> look at that. That's maybe the, not the most successful shot. Hmm. That's when I just look at it, I'm not sure if you can tell what you're even looking at. Why, that when, we see, when we look over and we see the... Yeah, I don't know if you can tell. Well, let's, let's pay attention to the dialogue a little bit. A life jacket? <laughs> what, tell me, what, what are your thoughts on the dialogue here? Jake. Mm. Well, what are your memory of these guys? Did you get well, to know them quite a bit? Well, I think Jared, this one time I got, I got like a virus on set. Yeah, yeah. He gave me like, I was like sitting in the tent. He get, he uh, got, he got me like uh, some Legos as a present. Oh. Because it, as like a get well present. Oh, that's nice. What was yeah, it? Was it a set it was, that it had was, a particular? Uh, it was like a deep sea Lego set, I think. That's that's nice. Is there, are they actually on the? They're not on the building now. You've built a, you've built another set that is. Yeah. The building, because the building exists. We've shot a lot of the exterior of the building. The building exists, um, but I do remember shooting this scene with Jared and Kara. Well, these two kids uh, had been through such an experience um, playing these roles, doing, doing just being in a movie, um, and they were so kind of plugged into their characters, even though I don't even know how much they thought about their characters at a, at a certain point. They just did their scenes. Um, but I felt just... was. Just just watching them do these this this ending, there was so much emotion uh, just 
in their presence. Um, I, I mean, it's one of those ones where you could you could feel on the set something interesting is happening, and they're they're um, they're giving us something that we have nothing to do with, really. I think one of the things that happens: different filmmakers have different ways of working. But how do you know when you're done? I mean, I, I feel like with most endings, um, there's what Bill thought's the funny shot. <laughs> My experience is that by the time you've actually got all the different ingredients together and you've managed to, to, to get to where, you're, to where it's time to write an ending, the ending is just waiting for you right there. And all you have to do is it's, it's almost like connecting the dots. It usually presents itself to you. Roman? Yeah. It, there's an inevitable sort of feeling that, yeah, you're rushing towards that thing, and then you're there. In this case, you set a lot of pieces in play, and you have, uh, you know, a combination of nature and convergence of human beings and, you know, in one place leading to an actual big physical thing. But is that the ending, or is the ending the beat after that? Well, the ending I'm talking about is more like the, the denouement-type scene that, we, that, uh, that, is, that comes after that in this one. Yeah. Should we, do, should we try to do an ending now? Well, yes. I mean, I think... Uh, I, I, I wouldn't mind doing this last... Okay. Uh, a letter view, from... Viewer mail question. That Roman and I yeah. can do. Okay. Let's, uh, yes, let's, let's go back to the fan mail. Oviedo. Daniel Ramos Sanchez of Oviedo, Spain. Yes, that's good. Good, good. That was oh, good this, I like the question. What kind of bird are you, Mr. Anderson? Hmm. I, don't I, don't, I don't know. I don't have any answer to that. Hmm. Hmm. That was a plain on duck. <laughs> Can you at least apologize to Mr. Look, Sanchez for not being able to give him an answer? Maybe like Ro Roman, do you have anything for that one? I think it's a setup because whatever you say could be used against you. Yeah. If you say you're an eagle, it's like, oh, it's a West thing. Well, you're not bald. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, it's, what kind of bird would be uh, the kind of bird that, that, uh, and th that would reflect badly on you? <laughs> a vulture? <laughs> well, that's actually would reflect that. It's very good. I, I think uh, next question. Okay. Well, I think the mailbag is pretty much empty at the moment, uh, so so I think we can be done with it with the emptiness. And what and, and as far as an ending, what is an ending? What is an ending? Um. Hmm. Roman over here, it's kind of become like people are really tired. <laughs> and they, and they, it's almost We're starting like, to zone out and watch the movie. We've exhausted ourselves. I think Jake should wrap us out. Mm, yeah. Yes. Okay, that's it. Okay, that's it. We're out of time. Thank you, Wes and Peter, and thank you to any listeners who are still with us. <laughs> I'm Jake Ryan, signing off. Okay. Goodbye. So Jake, okay, Jake, let's do it again. I think why don't you make it a little more low key? Oh, it's okay. Okay. and uh, and include Roman, Jason, Bill, Edward. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay, that's it. We're out of time. Thank you, Wes, Peter, Roman, Jason, Bill, and Edward. And thank you to any listeners who are still with us. I'm Jake Ryan signing off. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. No problem, guys. Can I ask a favor? Should we just turn off the movie now? Sure. Yeah. So we'll just go.
Uh, James, are you there? They're not listening to us anymore. we will demonstrate the orchestration of Mr. Desplat's musical suite. A little electronic metronome sets the time. First, a harp. Next, pizzicato cellos. Flute. And piccolo. guitar. Ukulele. Classical guitar. Banjo. Thin wood blocks. Celeste. 
vibraphone. Pizzicato violins and double bass. Tubular bells and glockenspiel. The ride cymbal. Piatti. Snare drums. Grand Cassar. Timpani. Sixteen baritone bass singers. Xylophone. Bassoons. Clarinet. French horns. Thank you very much for listening.